welcome to episode 72 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Cece Chapman. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks. We're recording in our living room in 7th Ward, New Orleans. I forgot where we lived for a second there. <laughs> we only owned this house for like four or five years. Yeah, five years exactly now, right? Oh yeah, we just got a Facebook like reminder. <laughs> and you know, it's the end of the year. So it's, you know, a pretty good time to re- remember milestones like that. Yeah, you know, really couple. <laughs> this is going to be our last episode of the year before we do our, like, best of 2018 episode. Yep. We're going to try to keep it a little highfalutin today, do some, like, foreign art films. <laughs> we fancy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is us pretending that we're smart, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which we only do mm-hmm. occasionally. So instead of asking what, like, movies have you been watching lately, I guess I should ask you... Just to look back on the year and try to remember, like, what are the best films you discovered this year that are non-2018 films? Ooh. Because we're about to do, like, our full roundup of movies from this year that we enjoyed. And uh, I know earlier in the year, we covered a bunch of stuff for the podcast. Uh, you and I especially liked a couple of Agnes Varda films from uh, French Film Fest this year. I was mm-hmm. really into The Gleaners and I. Yeah. And you were really into Le Bonheur. Le Bonheur. Which I cannot pronounce just means happiness and you know there's already an american film called happiness so you can't really like do the translation you know neither of those movies are very happy no weird it's like <laughs> calling a movie happiness hmm. it's a pretty good indicator that you're gonna leave bummed i think yeah but i guess my question then is a little more specific than when i, how I first framed it which is like what are the best movies you discover this year that we haven't haven't already discussed at length on okay. the podcast well, that so movies that didn't come out this year and that we haven't already discussed narrows the list down Right. Like a lot. But one film that I really liked that I can't believe I never saw before was the Barbara Stanwyck vehicle, the pre-code film, Babyface. came out in 1933. It is a film about a young woman who, after the death of her abusive father, goes to the city and sleeps her way to the top of the corporate ladder. Like literally. Literally, using like this great reoccurring like visual motif of like the lights going up like a building, like almost like an elevator, like ding kind of effect as she like climbs her way physically to the top floor of a building. Just by sleeping with uh, one executive after another. Mm -hmm. And she like arrives with nothing on the bottom floor. I think by the end, she's like holding a board of directors hostage with like her sexuality. And I mean, they kind of soften the end a little bit because she does fall in love with one guy and they like go to live a simple life kind of thing. But if you just cut off the last 20 minutes of the movie, it's just, like, dark and, like, mean. And I love that. And there was, like, an unreleased version of the movie that we found on this, like, Forbidden Hollywood box set that actually had, like, the original sentiment where she's basically encouraged to use the one thing she has in her advantage. Yeah, there's this kind old man who never sleeps with her when she's a 14-year-old. That's, like, how they introduce him. And he quotes Nietzsche at her, and he's like, it doesn't really matter what you do in life. Just, like, claw your way. It doesn't matter. There's another version that most people had seen prior to 2004 where he like quotes like the bible and tells her that there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it and you better do the right way uh so we thankfully got to see the correct version um, <laughs> it's a very peculiar form of like feminism where it's like she only has like one tool really that the world's given her which is like sex and it's kind of like oh well fuck them get yours use that to like climb your way to the top yeah and whether or not they soften it with like a little bit of moralism, the movie's like definitely on her side the whole time. The whole yeah, because she's never punished for it. Another really cool thing is that 
when she runs away from her dad after his death and the like shitty life that she knew she also brings her best friend chico who was like the barmaid at the place her dad owned and she's african-american and she has like a pretty reasonably large speaking role they're just best friends hanging out for the most part like obviously her role's not that great and she kind of is sort of her maid but not really they're mostly just sitting around gabbing about like how to manipulate men and hopping trains together hopping and trains together doing all the things best friends do yeah we watched a few like pre-code movies especially from that forbidden hollywood set this year and I feel like that one, Babyface, like, delivers what you're looking for from those movies, which is, like, explicit sex, like, a lack of morality. It's just, like, Hollywood Babylon kind of hedonism. Yeah, and, like, showing, hey, people from different races can just be friends. That's, like, they don't have to be servants. Like, which, whoa. Thank God the Hayes Code came and, like, disavowed that idea. Because, <laughs> yeah, like, it was a meteor role than you would have expected for a 1933 film. And Barbara Stanwyck's fabulous as well. Oh, yeah, no, she's great. She's chewing the scenery. Well, what else did you enjoy from this year? Well, kind of in the same thematic uh, line, but much more modern. Uh, I also really liked uh, Lizzie Borden's follow-up to Born in Flames called Working Girls. came out in like the late 80s, 86, something like that. Yeah. And while she was making Born in Flames, a lot of the actors who were not traditional actors uh, were also working as sex workers to pay the rent. And she got kind of interested in what their lives are like and how the day-to-day like life of a prostitute looks so she um made this film the studio tried to make it more salacious than she intended it to be um they kind of fucked with her a lot during production but pretty much it just follows this woman who is a lesbian who is a photographer who is just doing this to make enough money to like start her own business um she's closeted to like her co-workers and obviously to her clients and she goes to a house and it looks like a normal apartment, but it like... It looks like a windowless version of the Seinfeld apartment. Yeah, like it looks, yeah, it looks like an 80s TV apartment, I should say. It doesn't look like a normal apartment. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no windows, just like girls hanging out talking. And it's kind of obvious they're really living like on set. Because it like, has a very lived-in feel. And like they're like eating in like the background and like doing normal things. Yeah, some like... of that punk energy from Born in Flames definitely like, rolls over. Mm-hmm. Especially when she's riding around her bike taking photographs of New York City. Yeah. You get some of that same You told energy. me a really good fact about that, about the photographs. Oh, no, that was from another movie called Variety. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought I thought it was both. Oh, you know what? It is both. Yeah, both, both. Both movies, the photos were taken by Nan Golden. Yeah. Uh, so I guess Nan Golden was just outside that whole uh, no-wave cinema movement in early 80s New York. I completely forgot that that was both films. Yeah, both films. All the work the photographer does is from Nan Golden, which, you know, you just need somebody to do the photography for your photographer character. That's great. And Variety was another woman-directed movie about someone getting involved in sex work, sort of more tangentially, though. It's like she's taking tickets at a porno theater, and Nan Golden actually plays a bartender around the corner from there. Perfect. Uh, which is great. And I'd say the difference between that and Working Girls is like, the sex is so explicit in working girls. Like there's the scene in born in flames where they show a woman applying a condom. And it's kind of this joke about like what domestic labor looks like. So it's like someone wrapping a chicken at like a factory and someone like putting a condom on a dick. Uh, And I feel like working girls really leans into that. Mm -hmm. Like it's all about the labor of sex work and like them laundering dirty towels or like inserting a diaphragm and like, very explicit and very matter of fact like yeah, this is what it looks like there's nothing salacious about it really even though they show pretty explicit sex there's nothing sexy or sensual about it it's kind of horrifying yeah it's like very matter of fact but not documentarian either 
horrifying is a good word because there's a couple of scenes where based on the sound cues it is shot like a horror film you're kind of worried that something bad's going to happen <laughs> well she's doing two things right like the sort of larger concept of the film is like we're gonna treat this prostitution ring like it's an office mm-hmm. and they show these like very mundane day of them being stuck in this office and their boss taking advantage of them and it's basically like capitalism in a microcosm mm-hmm. it's just like every other job there's no real difference between what they're doing and like if they were like clerks in a government building or something but the sex scenes themselves some of them are fine and no boundaries are crossed but some of them turn from consensual transactional sex into like rape in a blink of an eye. Like mm-hmm. a character will do something or say something that crosses a boundary in the middle of them already having consensual sex. And it turns into something really horrific. And it's so subtly in that switch. And in that way, it's not like normal capitalist work. Or it's at least a, a much more extreme version of it. And there's these like sort of weird art of noise sound cues, like these like really weird off kilter new wave sounds playing on the soundtrack that like really amplified the tension of it. So yeah, it's like really playing both sides. It's like making sure you know that it can be dangerous, you know, traumatizing work, but also the daily tasks of it are pretty mundane, like office yeah. building politics. Yeah, and I guess when I say like it sounded like they were building up to like a horrific moment and nothing happened. I mean, like a knife didn't come out and no one got stabbed. Right. Like, it never became violent. But yeah, no, there's some moments where you can see on her face that it is no longer consensual. And it's always a customer crossing a boundary. Always. I really, I was blown away by it. It's crazy that it's not really available. No, um, there's a really great distribution company that I don't think a lot of the public knows about called Women Make Movies. They put out movies that are mostly made by women or women make film. One of the two. It's either women make movies or women make film. And that's really the only distribution for it in the United States right now. Yeah, we um, found it in a library. I think purchasing a copy is like $200 or something ridiculous. I think you can buy it from women. Oh, no, it's out of print from them, too. So, yeah, it's currently out of print. That's why it's so expensive. Because, yeah, our copy was like 50 bucks or something. But they just had that restored version of Burning Flames like two years ago. So maybe that's coming. Like, maybe... There's a lot of, like, focus and attention on getting these, like, voices. Yeah, these alternate stories out that, like, oh, hey, people are, like, saying, oh, there's, nobody has ever made, like, a film like this. It's like, no, somebody did back in the 80s. Like, we just have to go get it and, like, put it back out there um, just to show people it can be done because we've already done it. And you would think with the conversation about sex work and things like that right now, we would want to re-examine this one. Yeah, and I mean, it's clumsy in some ways, you know. Again, there's a little bit of moralizing in there. There's some weird stuff just about, like, politics, but it's overall, like, worth watching. Also, it's, like, extremely well written on a, like, dialogue level. I would say, you know, Working Girls and um, Babyface could almost be stage plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, Babyface, you might lose that effect of them climbing the the ladder and, like, you know, oh, you going use, up the you building. you could use scrims for that. But... Mostly, like, uh, both of these are, like, very dialogue-heavy and in rooms mm-hmm. where the sets don't really change. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I could see, like, a really good stage play adaptation of Working Girls that would, like, kind of revive its, like, interest. I mean, the intimacy of the sex scenes, though, I think is one of, like, the strengths of Working Girls. Yeah. Like, not, like, intimacy, like, between two people, but, like, you are really close to what's happening, physically intimate, not, like, emotionally. <laughs> so I don't know if there would be... 
it's not that like, oh, you can't have people having sex or simulated sex on a stage. It's that it would feel so distant from you. That's true. In a way that the movie wasn't because they used so many close-ups. I guess I'm thinking of like one half of it. Like I'm thinking yeah. of the, the capitalism in a microcosm half. Yeah, no, you're thinking the... of the girls sitting around complaining about their madam for like shitting them. Yeah. And like... And then she's just like any other boss you've ever seen in your life. She just yeah. takes advantage of them and shit rolls downhill and all that. Yeah. But yeah, I really liked both of those movies a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, what about you? I watched two sci-fi films that Ooh. I should have seen a long time ago. Okay. One I kind of already touched on because we did a top five Spielbergs episode this summer. Mm-hmm. But I finally saw AI, Artificial Intelligence, for the first time this year from 2001. When that movie first came out, the internet was something I was on every day, but I was on like AIM and stuff and message boards. Heck yeah. And it was a little harder to get like real information. You kind of heard like urban legends back then. What I had assumed about this movie... In the age of conspiracy theories, <laughs> I mean, it's a strong statement to make. There's multiple... You can look for multiple sources now. Yeah. There's a lot more hearsay, I think, mm. in the early internet. I'm thinking specifically of an AI. The sort of like urban legend about it was that Kubrick had started making this movie that Spielberg took over and ruined with this like ending that people aren't satisfied with. And the truth is that Kubrick started making this movie in like a pre-production kind of way and abandoned the project before he filmed a frame of it and decided like, I can't do this with the technology that I have and like kind of gave Spielberg his blessing to see what he could do with it. Cause he's more of like a uh... special effects guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The spectacle of this like future world they build with these artificial robots and stuff. It does have a really cool look to it. It's from the era when Spielberg also made minority report. That's not why I like this movie a lot. AI is emotionally tormenting. Oh, yeah. It's, like, so fucking sad. I cry during the first, like, third of it pretty much every time. It's so sad. The plot is that Haley Joel Osment is a robot built to serve as, like, a childlike figure for a family that adopts him. And his entire programming is that he's, like, a robot that can feel And what he feels is an unending love for his mother, quote unquote, which is like his owner. And when the woman no longer needs his comfort, she doesn't need a child to love her anymore. She just sort of discards him like an appliance and time moves on and he still loves her unconditionally and is trying to get his way back to her and doesn't understand why she doesn't love him the same way. And we as an audience know that this like Pinocchio type journey that he's on to like find his mom again is impossible and we even get so far in the future that she's like long gone anyway and he doesn't know that and he still like has this like wholehearted like yearning to be with this woman who didn't care about him very much when she was alive and it doesn't matter anymore because she's long dead now and it fucking hurts yeah no i'm tearing up just thinking about but he loved her so much and like no one will ever love anyone that much because it was so pure and it was the only thing that he was programmed to do and he just loved her and like that's literally what's going through my head now it's so harsh it's so harsh it's like that sequence in et which we rewatched this year Mm -hmm. as well where like elliot is in the hospital and him and et are dying together because they're like synced up and you kind of forget like how you know that movie is very whimsical and stuff but you forget how traumatic that like hospital scene is until it happens and ai artificial intelligence felt like spielberg extending that sequence for like the entire length of a three-hour movie and it's but then he slapped like an adventure like caper in the middle of it yeah and there's some goofy uh stuff in there too um 
Speaking of sex work, uh, Jude Law plays like this like ridiculous sex robot. He's a gigolo. Yeah. And his journey is pretty sad, too, but he's got more of, like, a comical edge to him. Yeah, he's cynical, at least. Like, he knows what he is and is, like, okay with that. And I will say the movie does have this, like, obvious point where it should end to be, like, a perfect work. And he does tack on an ending that isn't as good as the movie that came before it. But the idea that he ruined it in the last few minutes is so ridiculous because it's such an emotionally intense work. And I just can't believe I hadn't seen it until now. And I was very impressed by it. And one more... I would also want to cite another emotional sci-fi film I saw called Never Let Me Go from 2010. (laughs) One of the first times you and I went to the movies, we saw a trailer for this one. And I remember thinking like, oh, they're kind of spoiling the movie in the trailer. It's these like kids who grow up in the school for like a mysterious purpose. And you can kind of tell like, oh, they're being harvested for their like bodies for like a a richer society we don't get to see. It turns out that that's not a big deal because that's not the point of the movie. (laughs) Like that's like an early reveal. I feel like that might be a bigger spoiler. Sorry. If you're reading the book, Um, because I started reading the book a couple years later, totally forgot about the trailer when we were on our way to the beach. And like first like few pages, I'm like, Brandon, I think... I think that these kids are going to get their organs harvested. Oh, no. And then later, that was very much confirmed. And I hear the book's very good. And the book is excellent. And the movie's written by a friend of the author. And that friend happens to be Alex Garland, whose uh, Annihilation this year was like an emotional sci-fi triumph. Uh, He also did Ex Machina, which was another great film. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also a rumor that he directed Dread, which he wrote which I really love that movie, but it's not quite as like, it's more of like a action spectacle comedy. Never Let Me Go, though. The cast of that is incredible. Yeah, it's, they all go on to be super famous right after that, pretty much. Who's it? It's like Kieran Knightley, Donald Gleason, Carrie uh, Mulligan, Mulligan, and Sally Hawkins. And who was other Spider-Man? Not current Spider-Man, Spider-Man previously. Garfield? Andrew. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew Garfield. Garfield. Yeah. Um, there's a great story about Carrie Mulligan in that. Um, she read the book when it came out, like, you know, right after it came out that year. And she was a little young. She was, like, I think, like, 15 or so. And so she was a little young to play the main character. But pretty much she was not a professional actress at this point. She was just a normal teenager, normal-ish, because she knew a lot of fancy people in England. And she decided she had to play that part. That was, like, her life goal at that point. She just, like, was consumed with the desire to play that part. And so she, like, was, like, writing letters and, like, you know, advocating for herself, like, years before she needed to, like, years before they could consider it. Like, it hadn't been optioned at that point as far as she knew. She was literally just a fan of a book who had to be a character in it. And then later, she was in a few roles. She started getting some buzz. And she, like, had enough clout to, like, advocate for herself and get herself that part, which is just beautiful. And the movie kind of is like a melodrama. <laughs> it's it's kind of like AI in that I guess there's a little bit of like futuristic world building here, but mostly it's about these like characters' emotional, you know, breakdowns and this like long term methodical like commitment to what the premise means. Yeah. It's mostly a film about the fiery passion of unrequited teenage love and how impossible that is for like people in their situation and how like they feel these ocean like crashes of emotion and it doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things there is no cosmic meaning to this love that they feel because if nothing else they're built and born to die young in service of other people's health 
they're like basically being harvested for their organs uh, to serve a richer, more free class of people. And there's nothing they can really do to change the system or like, you know, put off their fate. They're just sort of like committed to this life before they even have a chance to realize what they're actually committing to. And the outsized emotion that teens have were like this romance that we have and it's like deep feelings that we feel. This is the end of the world. This is all that matters. This is our whole life. Usually for you and me, that's not true. Like yeah. you move on and you meet you have other time. people. You have time to like let that fizzle out, but they don't. They don't. It's That is their whole life. And you know, those emotions do mean a lot. Yeah. They're dead by the time they're 30. None of them make it past 30. They get to their late 20s and stuff, but like they're kept like super sheltered at this boarding school. But then when they're like, you know, between like 18 and 25, they kind of move to cottages, like a essentially a halfway house for clones. But yeah, they know what their whole life's purpose is. They're sterilized. They have trackers built into them. They're clones of like, I think they refer to it as like trash people so that they never run into their like double out there in the world. They just exist just to be organ donors. So yeah, if, if people are going to reclaim like a lost Alex Garland classic, I, I understand the rumors that he directed Dread and didn't get credit for it. Like a really tempting, and I really love Dread. I think that's a really super fun movie. But this one doesn't get talked about a lot. I feel like the book is referenced more than the movie. And it really like fits in his normal like emotional, thoughtful, not spectacle heavy sci-fi writing. Like it feels up there with Ex Machina and Annihilation for me in terms of like what he gets out of this like outsized premise with these like intimate emotional responses uh, in like a larger high concept idea. Yeah, like they don't need to put sci-fi in this other than the fact that, oh, this is a world where through scientific breakthroughs we can make clone people who aren't ever carried in the human body. They're just incubated somewhere and we use them for organ donations. Like that's the only high concept they had. There was no other technology. (laughs) Like they drove like beat up English cars. Everything kind of looked scruffy in 80s. Like they wore a lot of wool. It was the countryside. There was mist. There were sheep everywhere. Like it was like kind of looked like a music video for like The Cure or something. Like it wasn't anything fancy. I really wish more sci-fi and horror films, because that's most of what we watch, like had that sort of emotional impact. Because I feel like I watch a lot of sci-fi and horror for like other pleasures. And then I watch these like art films that are outside of that orbit to get this kind of response out of. So when I can find one that does both, it's very satisfying. Yeah, like the visuals for this film were important, honestly. Like most of the time when we're watching horror films, there's a visual spectacle of, you know, murder, blood, blah, blah, blah. very stylistic. And then when we watch a lot of sci-fi, it's very special effects heavy. And so this one was like, what if we just wrote a really good script? What if that's all we did? We just stopped there. Thankfully, it does look pretty, even though it's, there's nothing special about it. It could, have, it could have been a film about kids at a boarding school set in the 80s in England, and you wouldn't have known. So yeah, I'm, I'm really on the hook for everything he has going on right now. I'm sure we'll be talking about Annihilation a lot next episode when we do our uh, top films of the year. Heckin' yes. And yeah, if you just want more of that, I'd, I'd highly recommend going back to Never Let Me Go. So, yeah, let's get into some more highfalutin, artsy-fartsy picks. Heck yes. Heck yes. All that's coming up to you right Right now. now. No, Dr. Simono doesn't work here anymore. I told you so in my facts. I run the search now. I really need to find him. Please. I really need to find him. Please. 
I know, it just left town overnight without a trace or a word of warning. It just uh, up and left. We haven't heard from him since. He just left with no number, nothing. No contact, nothing. No, not even a postcard. It's hard to believe. Yes, I know. I'm sorry. And now it's time for our regular Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And the last time CC full-on co-hosted an episode was episode 26, and I made you watch the pro wrestling documentary Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows. That was like literally like a year or two Two years ago, ago almost? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, that was a while ago. <laughs> well, now it's your turn to get back at me. <gasps> oh, cool. <laughs> what did um, you make me watch? Well, I wasn't trying to get back at you, <laughs> uh, but I was trying to... It was October uh, when we watched this, and... I was trying to watch something that was 52 films by women, also female directed or also uh, this director has a film coming out. Well, it came out already this year, but it hasn't come here to New Orleans yeah, yet. Yeah, played festivals. Played uh, festivals so far. So the director in question is Claire Denis, and the film that is about to come out that we're excited about is High Life. Uh, so the film we watched was her horror film called Trouble Every Day. It's a 2001 I guess you could call it a new French extremism film. Uh, it's kind of in that genre. Body horror, cannibalism horror, maybe a little vampirism in there. Uh, it's really disgusting. Yeah, it's got the, that martyrs and innocence uh, vibe, but only periodically. It's not like full-on gross out the whole time. It's these like flashes of gore that go on for a few minutes. Uh, also, though, we saw like a somewhat censored version of the film. Mm-hmm. We spent a couple weeks trying to track down the unrated like festival cut that initially disgusted audiences at like can uh and it was impossible to track down in the u.s yeah uh, which is a shame that they're still censoring uh you know art for certain markets based on like the extremity of the violence like you'd think that sounds like something that would have happened like 20 years ago not like now you know but who knew censorship still alive and well <laughs> i mean the, the version we ended up watching was plenty disgusting as yeah is. yeah no and i think you know it's like maybe four minutes were cut from the version we watched so and those four minutes were pure gore so i don't i don't know it could feel like an eternity depending on how gross it was <laughs> And considering how gross some of the scenes were, I'm sure it was gross. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the plot of this film follows an American doctor and wife uh, who are newlyweds, and they just arrived in Paris for their honeymoon. And it turns out that the husband actually has an ulterior motive for wanting to go to Paris. He used to live in Paris and was part of a medical research team that was working on something on an isolated island, and they may have been using humans as test subjects. That part is really murky and i think a lot of people's complaints about the lack of a plot of this film come from the fact that you can't really tell what happened in the past claire denis as a director really only focuses on the things that are currently in the frame so when characters talk about things that happened in the past it's very vague there's a couple flashbacks to him having like arguments with other scientists about like ethical boundaries he crossed on that experiment but it's all very vaguely spoken about without like an explanation you don't actually see the inciting events that cause whatever's going on here you would just see him arguing with people and like losing his like medical practice uh, over it yeah or at least his like credentials there in france uh, yeah. again he now lives in the u.s and works quite successfully there but yeah so while he's there in paris ostensibly on a honeymoon he's trying to track down an old colleague of his through like the people they still know mutually mostly not to see that man himself but to see that man's wife uh, it's implied that he stalked her or raped her or had some kind of obsessive relationship with her. 
and that she may be the one who is infected by whatever went wrong in their experiment. All of these scenes are intercut with scenes of the French husband and wife. Uh, the French husband works as a undercover, like low-key, like poorly paid clinic general practitioner for like poor people. He does like home visits. In home visits, he keeps his wife locked in the house like a prisoner. And there's something wrong with her. You can't quite place your finger on it at first. You just see him like cleaning blood off of her a lot uh, and like burying bodies. But you don't know exactly what she's doing. And later, two young men break into their house and she lures one of them into her room and he like breaks through the boards to like get to her. And you see that it's like a compulsion. Like people, men are extremely sexually attracted to her and they cannot help themselves, but immediately become aroused and start having sex with her. During the sex, she becomes extremely violent and eats them. Yeah, she starts eating the burglar's face while she's mounting him. And then is basically like playing with her food. Like, it's not that she just bites off, like, his upper lip. It's that she, like, starts tonguing the flap and, like, playing with it like a feral child. Yeah, and, like, poking it and, like, blah, 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 kind of stuff. It's, like, really disgusting. It's obviously, like, very playful on her part. But he's, you know, screaming and passing out from the pain and then waking back up and then screaming. That scene is so gross and upsetting. So gross. Like, I was trying really hard not to just scream. We ended up watching this on Halloween night, too, so it was good to get a good scare like that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so yeah, it's, it's pretty much, it's almost like a spy thriller or something, him trying to track down this woman before she does any more damage. And the whole time the husband knows and he's trying to fix her. He has a lab in his basement. He's trying to figure out what happened. It's almost like his dog getting out and like messing with the trash cans in the neighborhood or something. Yeah, he always cleans it up. He always like hides the bodies. He always, you know, scrubs away any evidence that might lead back to her. And yeah, like, I don't want to go too much. Do you want, do you want to go further into what happens? Uh, after not that? really, other than maybe to say that Vincent Gallo, uh, who plays the American husband who's visiting France, starts to, like, display some of her symptoms once he, like, gets in contact with her. So it is, like, kind of a viral spreading of whatever is going on with her that we never get a full explanation of, other than it makes other people horny and then she eats them. Yeah. Um, but it's not like a full-on like splatterfest movie either. It's not like a high body count no, kind of horror film. No, no, and, and it's fair. There's very little dialogue. Like seriously, there might be like ten pages to the script uh, as far as dialogue goes. There is a soundtrack, but like there's also large swaths of just silence, um, which are really off-putting. Uh, so the film is very slow-paced. It's a lot of a brand new couple trying to negotiate boundaries and talk about their new relationship and you know it's almost like they're getting to know each other still yeah that's a classic horror trope right like the wife who doesn't really know her husband and he's yeah. off doing something while she's kind of like stuck in a domestic role not that like she didn't look great while doing that because she had like the best the american wife had like the best like glove and jacket combos and hats like she like would have color coordinated scarves and leather gloves or like color coordinated like coats hats and gloves it was just she looked great <laughs> despite like the horror show that is her husband but unlike usual dynamics like that like she's not necessarily afraid for herself she's just like very worried about what he's up to mm -hmm. uh and the most like horrific thing that happens between them is that they're having sex and he won't like finish with her and he like runs off to masturbate in the bathroom in this like really grotesquely pathetic way and she's like what is wrong with you 
Like this is supposed to be our like romantic honeymoon getaway to France, and you're just acting like a weird animal. Yeah, and he, I think before that he was reluctant to have sex with her at all. Which almost makes you wonder if he's already infected before he meets up with this other lady. If there's something already wrong with him, and he's like trying to get to the bottom of what it what is. What happened to him? And you also sort of get the sense that he's responsible for the initial breakout without any kind of... Yeah, again, with no context. You just kind of get the feeling. <laughs> yeah. He feels directly tied to whatever's going on with this doctor and his wife. Yeah, he's got to clean up the mess. The doctor obviously can't be, like, trusted. The French doctor can't be trusted to, like, do it on his own. But yeah, it's got a very light, dramatic touch for a film that's so graphically violent when it wants to be. Mm-hmm. I found it really just haunting. There are a lot of like super negative takes on this film, especially from Claire Denis fans, because this isn't her normal mode. But coming at it as a horror fan and someone who's sort of reluctant to enjoy the new French extremism stuff, because there's usually like a sexual violence aspect to it that's like a big turnoff. Which this, it is sexually violent. Sex and violence are like inextricable in this film. And there there are scenes of sexual assault in this, but they're not gleeful in it in any way there's no like look at us raping someone there's no Ah. leering uh like enjoyment of it no it's more like animalistic cronenberg maybe that like disgusted with your own sexual impulses and like sexual desire itself is this like nasty bodily horror uh the way she shoots it yeah and i think i think this film is very much a film about like the unease that we feel about our desires like we shouldn't want to do some of these things, and yet we are compelled to. Uh, I think it's kind of like what she was getting at with both the like you know linking together sex and cannibalism, and this overwhelming impulse to like track down this woman. He has to find this woman, even though obviously it can't come to anything good if he finds her. Kind of a situation. Yeah, it's not. It's not like he really has a plan either. He's just like mm. fixated on like reuniting with this couple. Yeah, so no, I think I think desire, like what it means to feel desire, like we think desire is a positive thing, but sometimes desire is bad. You shouldn't feel certain desires. <laughs> and so I think she was trying to kind of get at that aspect. And it made me more excited for High Life too, just because this movie is like incredibly eerie. And that's what it's got going for it. Like you're not going to be satisfied very much by the drama between characters or mm-hmm. the plot, uh, mm-hmm. what little there is. You kind of have to sink into the mood and enjoy the like just unease and like atmospheric tension of it and high life is going to be a horror film set in space and for that to work usually it has to be incredibly eerie like you need the eeriness and the atmosphere of space to really affect you for those kinds of movies to like leave an impression and this movie definitely has that going already so i already see how she could translate that to like a good space horror. That one's getting distributed through A24 too, so hopefully it'll be on a big screen nearby. We can go see it like nice and big and loud, like a, a good space horror movie. I mean, she did a really good job of making that atmosphere with these long, empty shots with like maybe like a scarf blowing in the wind. But like it goes on and on and on and on. And there's, again, so little dialogue, so little soundtrack you're just left with these like barely moving images like a slow moving painting or something and there's something wrong about all of them that reminds me of a lot of like 70s like european horror films too right like even the nicholas rogue film we watched this year don't look now which i would also probably say is one of my favorite like discoveries of like new films when he's walking around in uh venice and looking at like all the architecture and just getting a sense of like 
menacing telepathy between people and uh who's this weird looking figure that keeps showing up uh around these like canals when the couple in trouble every day are walking around and looking around paris i was like reminded of that like 70s art house horse european style yeah no I, i think that's a that's a valid comparison to make that like American tourist couple in a foreign country, one of them feels unease and you can't tell if it's because they're in a foreign place, if it's because there is something supernatural going on, if maybe there's a relationship strain in the couple. I think that's a really good vehicle to use for horror because it's kind of a fish out of water scenario so that you don't know who's the reliable person in the, the relationship. And also just the architecture, you know, when you're traveling, architecture is something you focus on anyway, so it kind of is a natural thing to, like, have all these long shots of buildings. I like a little city-specific tourism in films. Like, yeah. I get something out of that. I don't travel a lot, so, you know, I'm interested. Yeah, no, and now I know that if I ever go to Venice, I'm going to probably go on the Don't Look Now tour. Yeah. Do they have that? I assume they have are that, you a, right? Are you allowed to wear a rain slicker around Venice, or do they, like poo-poo that maybe (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i really liked trouble every day more than i expected to considering that a lot of the praise for it out there is pretty hesitant a lot of people are like well it's not her best film there are other good examples of new french extremism i I don't i don't know if i buy any of that like i really liked what she pulled off in the film it's really haunting and sparse and creepy and a couple of the gore scenes are some of the most uncomfortable i've been watching violence on the screen in a long time Especially when she's just playing with her food by licking that guy's tattered face after she bit into it. It's really upsetting. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if... I mean, I liked it. I didn't dislike it. But also, I haven't watched a lot of other Claire Denis films. Um, This actually might be the first Claire Denis film. Might be my first as well, yeah. I've been wanting to watch some of her early stuff because we have it there at the library. But no, I don't... I obviously can't compare it to anything else she's done. And as far as a horror film goes, it worked for me in the horror parts I do really love knowing what's going on. So maybe I would have liked a little bit more of a narrative plot to like actually understand the mechanism of whatever's happening. So like, I don't know, it's it's like a B for me, B plus. Definitely not an A. The year is 1942 and Paris is in chains. This amazing document was filmed with infinite daring by unusual cameraman Gaston Madru. To fool the Gestapo, he concealed his camera inside a basket carried in front of his bicycle and covered it carefully with empty wine and cognac bottles. He would mix with thousands of Parisian cyclists, ready to capture these pictures which draw aside the curtain that hid Paris in the days of its German occupation. A slight tug on a hidden cord as he cycled around Paris and his automatic camera recorded the amazing sights and scenes we are screening today. So we talked a little bit about the new French extremity with that last movie we just discussed. And that is just one movement of like French cinema. The most famous one probably is like the French new wave from the Mm sixties. And those were kind of like younger brats, kind of like the new Hollywood movement was you know, rebelling against the old studio establishment. They were rebelling against some sort of, you know, French big studio filmmaking. I don't feel like I have a good grasp on what big studio French filmmaking feels like. Like, what are the French New Wave really rebelling against? I don't really have a good idea of what mainstream French cinema was like before that. Um, So, like a lot of the big American studio pieces... You saw a lot of melodramas, you saw a lot of historical dramas. It was pretty staid in its message. It tended to be somewhat apolitical. 
and a lot of really beautiful sumptuous costumes. So kind of like we had our like Marie Antoinette biopics and our swashbuckling films. They had a pretty similar trajectory. And the right bank and left bank branches of the French New Wave were rebelling against different aspects of that studio system. And even now, like, we think of French cinema as being, like, hoity-toity and artsy-fartsy, but they make all these, like, stayed, buttoned-up dramas and these, like, uh, slapstick comedies that we never see because they're just not that interesting to us. So, like, their version of, like, Paul Blart Mall Cop doesn't really, like, come across yeah, the ocean. Yeah, these people love Jerry Lewis, for uh, yeah, God's worship sake. Like, they make stupid stuff. We just, yeah, we just don't see it. And we just think their films are more intelligent because they're not American, which is ridiculous. Like, So unless there's like some sort of like important context to one of these mainstream French movies, we're not really going to see them. And we have been collaborating on reviewing this one pox set in particular that did have like a special context to it. So we got kind of a glimpse of what, you know, a mainstream French drama would have been like before the French New Wave and came and broke that up a little bit. These are four films that are in a box set and Criterion. It's part of their Eclipse series. They're four films directed by Claude Autant Lara from the period of time when France was under German occupation in World War II. So that is the, you know, cultural context that gives these like four sort of mainstream historical dramas like a reason for people to like examine them as like art and like political resistance in a very subtle way because they're like under the censorship of Nazis. Mm-hmm. The series is titled Four Romantic Escapes from Occupied France. It's a little weird to think of now of Claude Autant Lara kind of sneaking in these like subtle political jabs to the censorship because later when he was a part of like European Parliament, he was kicked out for these like far right Holocaust denying statements. Yeah, no, he insisted that, oh, well, I was, you know, there during the Holocaust and I never saw any of it. I was just making movies and everything was fine. It was like, well, you, yeah, you were there making movies. What do you mean everything was fine? Everything was not fine. And the movies he made were under like intense censorship. There wasn't much he could do. He had to stay within those bounds of like very well behaved costume dramas and like frivolous comedies. So these four movies aren't like, really taken many wild jabs at the Nazis or anything. It's it's four movies set in France's more idealized, like, romantic past. Uh, and all four of them star the same actress. Her name is Odette Joyeux. She's just as much of a, uh, I, I want to say auteur in this uh, series as he is. Like, she defines the tone and the... Um, appeal of all four of these movies i'd say yeah no her personality is a huge part of the success of these films she plays the young ingenue in all four and she plays like a range of ages from 16 to like late 20s all the while she's in her 30s yeah like mid 30s yeah um her last role in these four films uh sylvie and the phantom which we will talk about she plays a 16-year-old who is just turning 16 the night of her birthday, and she is well into her 30s at this point. Uh, <laughs> she played her youngest role at her oldest, essentially. And Sylvie and the Phantom is the most famous one of this box set, I'd say. Uh, what made this box set stand out to you? Like, what, where did you find it? How did you get interested in watching all four of these? So these were ordered by a professor at the library where I work. Um, they asked us to order them so that they could view them. Uh, and the reason why I picked it up was uh, a little while back, uh, you and I both watched all of the Douglas Sirk movies we could get our hands on and, you know, really gave them a critical reappraisal because at the time that they came out, they were very 
financially popular but critically panned because they were melodramas. They were for women. They had women's beautiful, pictures. Women's was, pictures. Yeah. They had beautiful costumes, but obviously because they were made for women, they couldn't possibly be of cultural value. And so these films were regarded in much the same way um, long after one of the criticisms of the uh, French New Wave was films like this because, you know... France had wasted their their money and their talent on making these women's pictures. Uh, so, guess what, guys? French New Wave, a little bit sexist, <laughs> especially the left banker or the right bankers. The right bankers were the more conservative ones, like uh, Godard, Godard, and Truffaut. Truffaut. Whereas the right bankers are people like Chris Marker and Agnes Varda. Uh, but the right bank, they were really uh, against this idea of making. Films just for the sake of enjoyment, films for the sake of escape and fantasy. And so because I disagree with that thesis, I really wanted to try and uh, educate myself on these more frivolous women's pictures to try and give them, you know, the credit where, where it's due. And these don't have the same technicolor, like sumptuous productions as the Cirque movies mostly because they're from the 40s. Yeah, because Cirque's movies were in the 50s, so... But they are, like, really big productions, um, considering the financial constraints of a country producing movies under a foreign occupation. They they do have, like, kind of a lush costuming and, like, pretty big casts, especially the ones that are, like, set in castles. Odette Joyeux often plays a young, bratty daughter of an aristocrat in these films. That's kind of, like, her, her main... Role in she's these. not bratty. She's sassy. She's fiery. I find her very disruptive. Uh, it's it's <laughs> but like, adorably like a, so. A, a, a flittery kind of way. Like she's like, oh, I've got this great idea. Let me disrupt everybody's daily routine because I got this great idea. Um, not like so much like, well, it's my party and I get to do what I want. It's not like that attitude. She's never mean about anything. She's never cruelly demanding. She's always just like dreamy and detached from, oh, well, maybe this will make trouble for everybody if you come up with this this plan and execute it. Yeah, she's like a source of chaos, but I guess it's not like malicious in any way. No, no. Except maybe in Deuce, spelled Mm -hmm. D-O-U-C-E, that's the darkest one of these. And that's when like the melodrama of it really tips into like misery. Tragedy, Brandon. Tragedy. Yeah. The other three are more comedies. Yeah, farces. Almost rom-coms, I kind of want to call them. Yeah, they're farces. You know, like people get married at the end of all of them, pretty much. But yeah, they're they're lighthearted. They're romps. So the first one that we watched was The Marriage of Chiffon. You want to pronounce that in French for me? Le mariage du Chiffon. And that one, she plays an aristocrat's daughter mm-hmm. who's in love with her uncle by marriage. By marriage. He's not biologically related to her. He, like, married into... His sister married into the family, so... And she's much younger than him, and he doesn't take her, like, sexual desire of him very seriously. He kind of dismisses it as, like, the whims of, like, a child. He's not that much older than her. He's supposed to be, like, 28, and she's, like, 20. Like, he's, like, at the age where he's, like, at the end of his bachelorhood, and he should be getting married soon. Uh, See, I read her as a teenager in this for some reason. Oh, I guess, like, maybe 16 to 18. Yeah. Okay. I've read her as a teenager in almost all of these well, movies. Well, but though. she also is obviously not a teenager. Right. So it's a little hard to tell what age she's supposed to be. Uh, the uncle is like a aviator. Mm-hmm. So everyone around him fi- kind of finds him this like frivolous kook who like is wasting his fortune and his like good name 
on trying to make an airplane fly. This is pre-Wright Brothers. So right. Early, like, pre-World War II flight. He's got, he's got a lot of, like, bales of cotton canvas for his plane wings and things like that. But she finds it very poetic that he's trying to do this. And he's trying to touch the clouds. Her, her own life, she keeps, like, a diary of her life called The Boring Diary. Mm-hmm. And she, like, finds this sort of, like, buttoned-up rich girl lifestyle where she's like in the house waiting for a husband to be very boring. And she finds his like fantasy of flying an airplane to be like this, like, you know, escape from being stuck in the house. So that one's like kind of like a rom-com. There's a lot of mistaken identities because people meet in the dark in the streets and a lot of, uh, misunderstandings and like farcical setups in hotel rooms. Like there's this whole thing about, a pair of shoes that gets moved around and people get confused about who's moving the shoes and, and whose shoes are they? Yeah. Like several people claim that those are their shoes. It's very like classic comedy in that way. Yeah. Uh, the next one we watched was letters was love letters in English. <laughs> uh, letters d'amour. That one is set during Napoleon, the third's empire. And it's this sort of class warfare between the society and the boutique it's basically like the wealth class versus the workers and the shop owners. And Odette Joyeux plays a slightly older woman in this one. She's a widow, a young, a young widow. I think she was only married for like, did she say like a few months or a year? Definitely under three years. And she did not love her husband and was rather relieved when he died. And she holds a public position as a postmistress. Yes, it was her husband's post. Uh, and she got it when he died, essentially. Uh, much to the chagrin of the villagers who are the uh, la Societe because they think that a woman should not be postmistress, even if she did get it from her husband. And in this one, she receives a letter through her postmistress job addressed to her best friend, but it was like a secret adulterous love letter signed by your hedgehog. Yeah. Well, it's addressed to her. She's been agreeing to get the letter sent to her. That she then passes on to her best friend, but she never reads them. She doesn't know what's in them, um, but she does know that it is adulterous material. And it becomes like a point of like public scandal. Yeah. And there's a whole court trial over it. And it's a, a magistrate who's another you know government official in this like adulterous love affair with somebody that we don't like. Like she's kind of a villainous best friend character. Yeah, like Odette Joyeuse best friend is the wife of the person who's trying to get Odette Joyeux deposed from her job. So her best friend is the adulteress, uh, and the person who's presiding over the case is the adulterer. And so he knows that the letters are definitely not Odette's. He knows that those letters are her best friend's and his. So there's like a bunch of people involved in this. And because it's a rom-com, he starts to realize like, oh, the person I've been addressing the letters to as like a cover is actually the person I should be in love with. Cause she's mm. like a better person. And this one's kind of interesting. Cause it has like two things going on. Like on one side, it's the most political out of all the ones we've watched. Like there's this sort of class warfare, working class rising up against the wealthy order, which is the most political. Any of these like Nazi occupation uh, comedies get, but at the same time, it, the big showdown, the big like class warfare takes the form of this giant dance-off. It's like this, like, you got served kind of conclusion. (laughs) Essentially, but with a quadrille. Yeah. Um, So there is, every year there is a big party, and every year both the working class and the ruling class attend this party and dance with one another. But the mean best friend 
who is now fully against Odette Joyeux uh, and fully trying to frame her for these love letters, uh, has decided that the best way to get back at her and the rest of the working class is to teach everybody a complicated square dance to us, a quadrille dance, and then not teach them so that they'll look foolish when the dance happens because they won't know the steps. And Adette Joyeux figures it out, obviously, because she is a smart young thing, and then secretly has all the working class spend every night instead of like sleeping learning to dance this specific dance so the guy the only like dance instructor who knows this dance is being like worked 24 7 between these two warring groups of people he's very tired yeah <laughs> it makes for a lot of comedic relief because he's constantly trying to get a nap and also another like thing that contrasts the political angle of this is that all the costumes are done by dior yeah the gorgeous stuff so like, yeah that's one of the like main focuses is not any kind of political strife it's like just how beautiful everything looks hey nazis don't look over here sparkly right that's so sparkly <laughs> deuce was the next one we watched mm -hmm. and that one has her as another aristocrat's daughter who's mm -hmm. sort of bored in her castle mm -hmm. uh she gets involved with another man who she can't have she like longs after this like stable worker the stable worker is secretly married to her governess, or they were going to be married. They're like lovers with a past that they haven't disclosed to their employer. Uh, and the governess is also being courted by her father, who's this wealthy man who should not be crossing class lines to marry the help. And Odette Joyeux like very bratty in this one. When I called her a brat earlier, this one's the one where she lives up to that. Because uh, she is jealous of the governess in both directions. She doesn't want her to date her father and she wants the older man stable worker who's like this gruff masculine figure for herself the stable worker is essentially gaston from beauty and the beast <laughs> and he becomes jealous as well because the governess is entertaining the father's flirtations and considering whether or not to marry him across class lines so he runs away with odette juyu in his care with the intention to marry her and for them to be poor together but in love and it's kind of like a, the graduate moment where once she like runs away from the house and is with him and gets what she wants, it ends up being this sort of like empty feeling. And the jealousies and the class divisions lead to a you know grand scale tragedy in this one that doesn't happen in the other films. This one's also set at Christmas time, so it's like really overly sentimental in a way a lot of melancholic Christmas movies can be. Uh, one of the first shots is this pan over France, over Paris. And it's like a miniature of the city and it's all snow covered and like those little miniature Eiffel Tower and stuff. See, it's kind of like the whole city in this like little snow globe. So you get this like, you know, sentimental Christmas melancholy feeling right up front. And then this Christmas time tragedy between these like class divided people unfolds after that. It wasn't just a tra tragedy because of the class like divide. I don't like think in any way she was being punished for it. It was more like nobody's motivations were pure. The stableman was trying to make his previous lover jealous. He also was trying to work out a scheme with the governess to each of them marry a rich person and then steal all the rich people's money and then run off together, just the two of them. And the governess was trying to play both sides and... Odette Joyeux's character, Deuce, was trying to just prove to all the adults that she could outsmart all of them and that she was a uh, woman, and, was not a a woman and not a child. So, like, nobody had, like, any real intentions, really. Like, nobody was truly in love in Except this the film. dad, I guess. Yeah, but he was, like, 
he just wanted somebody to like hang out with him because he knew his daughter was going to get married and leave. So he wanted like a new wife so that he wouldn't be alone all the time. And when I say like the class divides driving the conflict, I'm not necessarily saying that that's why things go awry, but more that those divides are like heavily policed. And there are people there who make sure that no one crosses that line, Uh, particularly the father's own mother uh, is very stuffy and old fashioned and like can't see how, you know, socially involving yourself with the help is anything but like a disgrace upon the family. So like when she runs away with the stable worker, that's like a huge insult upon the house and basically damns her name um, and their name by extension. So this one's got a very different tone than the rest of them. Yes. The last one is the most famous one, Sylvie and the Phantom. And it's mostly famous because Jacques Tati, the famous French director, plays a ghost. Yeah. It's his first like on-screen like, role like in a film, I think. Other than a couple like little short bits, I think, that people have found over the years. Uh, this is his first like big role on screen. And he kind of went on to make Charlie Chaplin kind of comedies during the... French New Wave era in the 60s? Is that mm-hmm. kind of fair to say? Yeah, his films his films are a broad physical humor. They're rather cleverly set up. So, I mean, I'm not saying his films are like low or anything like that. Yeah. They're very intelligent, uh, but he relies largely on physical humor and he does very little dialogue in like his films. Um, his characters don't usually rely on dialogue. He's kind of a a predecessor to, you know, maybe Mr. Bean. Uh, Like, his most famous character is Mon Oncle. And so he plays, yeah, just, like, this, like, bumbling uncle. And, like, Wes Anderson-type visual fussiness, too. Yes, there's a beautiful visual fussiness and everything. A lot of symmetry. His most famous film, Playtime, uh, is set in this beautiful futuristic city uh, where everything goes awry because, you know, you can't trust modern technology. But he actually built those sets from scratch. And it is a glorious beautiful glass and steel confection uh, yeah. that he managed to make. So he, he really relies on visual humor and visual style, which is something that was really important to his role here in Sylvie and the Phantom because he plays the Phantom and he plays it silently. The Phantom does not have a voice because he's incorporeal. It's almost mime work, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of humor to his like ghostly pranks around the house. Uh, this is another old-fashioned castle where Odette Joyeux plays a teenager. It's it's her 16th birthday in this film, even though she's well into her 30s. And he is a painting of a hunter that almost married her grandmother but died in a duel. Uh, and she's been in love with this painting uh, her entire life. And I guess through transference of him being the ghost represented in the painting, he's sort of fallen in love with her as well. And he leaves the painting on her birthday party because it's being sold and hauled away from the castle because they're not doing so hot financially. He basically causes mischief around the house uh, and tries to steal her attentions and make sure that she stays in love with him despite the fact that she's growing up and is probably going to be married off pretty soon. This turns into a even bigger farce because her father is also somewhat of a prankster and hires another ghost to like an actor playing a ghost to disrupt the party and scare the guests uh, just so that it's like a good party. He didn't want to scare them. He wanted it to be more like sweet and melancholy, like a way for uh, Sylvie to say goodbye to her ghost because he felt very guilty selling the painting. He told the art dealer as he was selling it, 
I knew it was a choice of either selling the painting or the castle, and I couldn't let Sylvie make the decision because she would have sold the entire castle just to keep the one painting. She's so in love with this ghost, man. <laughs> and he was like, no, I know that she's getting older, and it's kind of inappropriate that she's still in love with this ghost painting. And yeah, so the ghost and the, the actor who's playing a ghost are around. And then there's these other two men. One's like a suitor of hers, and the other is a thief who unrelated was in the castle trying to steal things and they end up pretending that they were also hired to play ghosts uh, so that they don't get arrested for you know breaking and entering pretty much so then there's three fake ghosts and one real one and it ends up being this sort of like scooby-doo level farce where they keep going through the castles like various hidden passageways and disrupting this giant 16th birthday party for Odette Joyu Sylvie and she um is confused which version of the ghost she's in love with by the end of the film because they each had different interactions with her, uh, the three fake ones and the one real one. And the movie does settle on her falling in love with, quote-unquote, the right ghost, while the uh, the real hunter from the painting sort of, like, acknowledges that she can never be with him and sort of just, you know, leaves to the heavens uh, so that she can live her life and grow into an adult. It's easy to see why this is the most famous one, not only because of Jacques Tati, but because of the way the effect of him being imposed on the frame was done was like really technically impressive in the way none of the other movies really are. I didn't, still don't quite understand it, even though you've explained it to me like several times. <laughs> so uh, I think they use something that's called a, I think it's a Simon box or Simon's box. Uh, can't quite remember the name, but pretty much it's the same effect that when you're sitting on a train and you're looking out the window at the landscape, you can see the landscape, but then also on the glass itself, you can see the room behind you you can see the chair next to you you can see the aisle you can see the conductor walking through asking for tickets you can see all that against the pane of glass so what they do is they have a second set that is completely covered in black velvet that is set adjacent to the real one but like slightly behind the camera so like at a right angle to the real set and then there's a pane of glass where the ghost is supposed to be it's called Pepper's Ghost. Pepper's Ghost. That's right. It's someone's name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking it was a lady's name, but no, it's a puppy's name. Puppies are named Pepper. And so he's wearing all white, which they also make part of the plot because it makes you show up a lot better for wearing all white against a black background. So the light is shining on him on the set he's on, and that gets reflected onto a piece of glass that is in front of the camera in front of the real set. And you said that's how they do holograms at like live magic shows as well. Like it's similar to like how like modern holograms are done. Like, you know, when we have like dead performers show up, but we're doing that from underneath the stage, I believe. Uh, yeah. uh, and it's projected upwards. So when people say like smoke and mirrors, they're like literally talking about this kind of. Yeah, more yeah. or less. And also because he's a hunter and has a cocker spaniel with him in the painting, he also has a cocker spaniel ghost that follows him around the castle. Puppy ghost. <laughs> Yeah. Puppy Ghost is the cutest thing in the world. I could watch a whole spinoff of just about Puppy Ghost. Puppy Ghost. And even that's kind of impressive because the way Jacques T is interacting with the environment, you know, is very precise. Like they have to build these like stairs to match the stairs that he's walking down in the actual environment, you know, in the sort of black box that we're not seeing. So the way that they get the Puppy Ghost to do the same, like get him to go to the right marker so that it looks like he's like 
barking at a door or like running downstairs. That's really impressive to me. Like the choreography of them pulling that off. Yeah, no, it's it's really neat. At first I assumed that they did just a double exposure. Phantom carriage kind of stuff. Cause they were doing that in the twenties. Yeah, but no, this is, this is something slightly more sophisticated. I think and it let them have a little more flexibility in the sets. And he interacts with the uh, environment more mm-hmm. because of it. Like he blows out a candle or someone lighting a cigarette uh, just to fuck with them because he's, you know, a prankster mime kind of character, uh, even though it's not full on slapstick. Like he's romantically in love with Sylvie, but he is a little playful as well. Yeah. No, he's not like slipping up banana peels or anything like that. He's not undignified in any way, but like if somebody complains that, oh, of course there's no such thing as ghosts, ghosts, it's stupid to believe in ghosts. Only an idiot would believe in ghosts. Then when that person tries to light a cigarette, he will keep blowing out their match over and over again. (laughs) Or when, they do a fortune-telling birthday game with Sylvie. They tell her, if you blow out all the candles at once, you'll be married within the year. If it takes you 10 tries to blow out all the candles, you won't be married for 10 years. And so he prevents her from blowing out the last candle because he doesn't want her to get married and move out of the castle. Yeah, by blocking her mouth with his hand. And I don't know, the choreography of them matching that up. I imagine this movie took longer to film than most of the other ones, just for that technical aspect. And this was the only one of the films that was released after the war, um, with the actual pretty sizable gap between the war and its release. All the rest were filmed and premiered during the war itself, whereas this one, I think, was like a couple years after. Yeah. Um, So it's still included with them because it's obviously the same spirit as the other three, but this is the only one that is actually made post-war. Yeah, the other three were released in 1942 and 1943, and this one came out in 46. Yeah. So there's a pretty big gap in between that. And like I said, this is the most famous one, Sylvie and the Phantom. But I was kind of impressed, like, in general, how all of them were good, like, mm-hmm. great even. I haven't rated any of these lower than four stars yet, like, when filing them on Letterboxd, you know? Like, I was impressed by how funny everything was and how much of a consistent joy Odette Joyeud is to watch. And even Deuce, which is like a pretty big deviation from the rest of the set, I actually found that one to be my favorite of all four. And that's not really what you're looking to these for. Like you want them to be charming and romantic. And that one's really sad and like, you know, dramatically orchestrated. And I I found myself falling in love with that one. Dang. I did not like that one at all. You didn't like that one? I mean, not as much as the others, no. I guess it's like the big dramatic climax of that one I really appreciated when they're at the ballet and there's like a huge fire and like these crowds rushing around um, it's definitely like old fashioned filmmaking you, that one feels like a 40s tragedy but I don't know it's just like really well performed and her emotion in the film is like really convincing and I got really swept up in the melodrama of her like starting this relationship she was not mature enough to jump into you know like she runs away from home with this like stable worker convinced that she wants this like romantic like working class life and then realizes it's not romantic at all and she's kind of stuck with the decision once she starts it and uh she just looks devastated there's this really really depressing scene where they're in a restaurant he takes her on a date and she's looking around all the other happy couples at other tables and like imagining what their lives are like and he's not really engaging in the game that she's playing and she's you know it just kind of dawns on her that she's been playing this like really sad game that is going to ruin the rest of her life if she falls through on it. What what didn't you like about Deuce? Everything you just described. I thought it was boring. I thought it was... The plot was kind of thin and the character motivations didn't make any sense. I just didn't like that one very much. Did you have a clear favorite? I really like Sylvie. Sylvie's fun. Uh, and I also really liked the very first one. 
Siobhan's marriage. Yeah, Le Mariage de Siobhan. I thought that one was really fun. Um, actually, no, and I also really like Letters to More. I liked all of them except Duce or Deuce. That's my favorite one. Yeah, no, I, I, I liked all, all three of the others. I thought they were all pretty cute. I think Love Letters uh, was probably the most like fun as far as like over-the-top slapstick goes. Like that back and forth with the dance instructor was like really fun. The costumes were really beautiful. And that one had sort of like this, it's not overt. There's like a subtle political edge to that one as well. Yeah, but uh, Le Mariage de Chiffon, like she, there's a very open sexual freedom in that one. Yeah. Um, The guy that she's in love with is carrying on a, a sexual relationship with a married woman. And she herself is being courted by another person, a officer. Much uh, older officer. A much older, like, military officer. And, like, there's none of... Nobody gets punished for sexual affairs, which, I mean, it's France, so, obviously. Um, but, like, there's no judgment or condemnation of any of the characters for having affairs. And same with, with Letters Demoir. There's a little bit of condemnation in that one. But, yeah, you don't really see any of that in... Uh, mariage and i remember in mariage she has like a conversation with him very late in the film where she's like if we get married i can't promise i won't cheat on you and she like talks about like how she will desire other men yeah and it's like oh okay and it's just very matter of fact it's like look i i recognize i'm a young girl prone to flights of fancy and as it is, I already can't make up my mind between two people. So, like, how can I how can I guarantee that won't happen in the future? And I don't know. I just found all that really charming. Yeah. And I think the more movies, like, showcased her, the more I was into them. Mm. I could feel myself slipping a little bit in Sylvie because a lot of it is between the three ghosts. Uh, yeah. The three men sort of negotiating when they're going to go out and scare the party and when they're going to go out and have, like, private moments with Sylvie. Uh, and it's a lot about the politics between them. Almost to the point where the two guys who, like, sort of break in and are faking that they're actors, like, it's a lot about their relationship. And there's kind of like a weird passionate friendship that develops between the two of them. Yeah. Um, that has nothing to do with her. Yeah, no, Sylvie definitely got the the least screen time for Odette Joyeux compared to the other three. But I don't know. The reason why I like these films is because they are these frothy feminine things that can't be critically rated because, you know, they're just too low. And Deuce is the only one that's serious among them. So, like, if the reason why I like them is because they're frothy and sweet, I don't want to watch one that's not frothy and sweet, you know? It's the most serious one. It's the one that could get critical acclaim. But Deuce has that Douglas Cirque melodrama, though, where, like, the emotions are so big. Like, it has, like, a Shangri- it's like a Shangri-La's song or something. There's yeah. this big drama about, like, running away and, like, leaving your family behind. And I really like that escapism is not it's not like a um rom-com in this case it's like over sentimentality and like really grim it's like when you're like really sad you listen to like a shushu song instead of like a uh a fun dance song uh you sort of like lean into it yeah but i don't listen to shushu i do (laughs) i know i think there's just a difference in our sensibilities yeah well that was my favorite all three of the others will be my favorite (laughs) Is there anything else you wanted to say about, like, the box set as a whole? I think it's a lovely little box set. Um, I really like this Criterion uh, Eclipse collection. It's usually box sets of kind of underappreciated films that are put out with minimal packaging compared to, you know, the normal Criterion releases in order to keep the price points kind of low. It's a way to make putting physical copies of obscure media, like, cheap enough for them to do it. 
um, but still like clean them up and do the restorations on them that they normally would do. And these weren't super crisp. Either. No, they didn't do like obviously like as great a job on the restoration as they would do for a bigger a bigger piece. Um, but the, the context of the war definitely gives them like a different layer of interest. Yeah. Like I'm sure there's a ton of other French melodramas from the 40s or even the 50s that we could watch. But and you're, you're sort of looking for some sort of like sign that this was made under duress and under occupation when you're watching these. Yeah. And like you said, that frothiness takes on a whole other like level when you're considering as like an escape from the world outside the cinema. Yeah. Like Audrey Hepburn was living in Paris at this time. And like she was so malnourished that she couldn't continue her ballet career after the war because she could never build up the muscle mass again. And yet they're spending how much money on Dior costumes and, you know, how many yards of silk went into each ball gown and, like, Swarovski crystals and, like, all of this stuff when, you know, people were, like, starving in Paris. So, I mean, it's a little sad thinking about that, obviously. And the Nazis were very fashionable. So I could see how they would want to keep, if they're going to occupy and take over France, how they'd want to keep it as like an epicenter for like Well, and they want fashion. to make sure they can prove that they're fashionable. Right. Because for a while, people didn't think uniforms were particularly fashionable. There's a line in Sylvie and the Phantom when the dog, uh, Sylvie's actual dog, who's named after the dog in the painting, won't stop barking at the painting. And her father, you know, is complaining that the dog always just barks at this painting. And the art dealer goes... Yeah, my only my dog just won't stop barking at men in uniform. And Sylvie's <laughs> father points out, "Oh, yes, your dog has good taste." Because <laughs> Is yeah. that a subtle jab at Nazis? I have no idea. Maybe. Maybe. Or just also cops, like if somebody asked, like they would just be like, "Oh yeah, cops are soldiers too." But no, I don't think people thought very well of people in uniforms. And <laughs> so although we can look back at those crisp lines of a Nazi uniform and go, "Well, it was very fashion forward even if they were evil right they're well dressed but evil but i don't think that was considered fashionable at the time it's only later that that kind of stuff has kind of slowly percolated into our consciousness and become acceptable so i think by making these frothy beautiful films they could be like see we have good taste see see when we murder all of you guys it's gonna look really great after because we're gonna be so well dressed see it's like oh cool thanks and it's interesting to imagine, like, who's going to these movies. Because I'm sure they had cinemas that were just for German soldiers. Mm -hmm. Were they watching these or are these just for French people? And we really don't have a lot of information on that. I mean, even officers have wives, True. you know, and their wives had to do something. They usually traveled with them when they went places. Their wives went with them to concentration camps. Their wives went with them to the for to, you know, maybe not the front lines, but like when they occupied various places. So their wives needed something to do. Uh, and, you know, the Nazis were very for, like, certain family values, like, making a lot of Aryan children. So they always had wives with them, and they always had children with them. So kind of putting forward media that could be enjoyed by, like, the, like, strong women of the German Empire was also, like, one of their goals. But, like, Hitler had his own, I want to call them, like, propaganda filmmakers, but he had his own, like, filmmakers that he championed and had them make stuff under the Reich. Yeah. And then these feel very separate because they're in French and they're about French past. Like Deuce is about Belle Epoque, France, and other ones are about Napoleon occupation. And then Mariage is turn of the century. And Sylvie and the Phantom was more or less present day back then. It was 1930s, maybe 1940s based on the cars and clothing. It's a very like French centric collection it feels like it was made for french people and it's like really hard to imagine them watching this i don't know 
I don't know. I wish I had more information about how these were received and like how people were experiencing them and if they got that escapism from it and like what it was even like to watch a movie like this, get sucked up in the humor and the romance of it and then walk back outside and like back to reality. I definitely use movies that way a lot when I'm, you know, really depressed. It's nice to like escape for a few hours. Yeah, but you like to escape and watch a sad thing. <laughs> I do like to watch and consume sad things when I'm already sad. I like to enhance the emotion. It makes me feel better. So cool. <laughs> well, that's about as classy as we'll ever get on this podcast, I think, is this box set. Yeah. We go to um, French Film Fest every year. We see all the hoity-toity French stuff there. So this is like as highfalutin as we ever get on here. Mostly it's like cheesy horror films and over-the-top comedies and stuff like that. Even though these have like that frothy romantic escapism and humor to them, this felt a little more like important and like had a historical context to it. Yeah, that's just because they're in French. <laughs> just because it's in French doesn't mean it's fancy. Well, uh, we'll come back uh, in a couple weeks with our best movies of 2018. And maybe we'll keep it a little classy after that, too. Hold on to this for a little while before we devolve back into our usual ways. I hope everyone has a good new year. Happy new year. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.